I'm Jasmine Moradi, and you are listening to the Power of Audio, Science and AI. To the future of VR and AR, you are the co-founder of Echo VR, bringing many VR and AR experiences to life through the power of music. On your website, you state sound is 50% of the VR experience, yet is often an afterthought in the rush to create visual imagery. Without the right audio cues to match the visuals, the brain simply won't accept the illusion of virtual reality. So share your thoughts and prediction with us. Um, well, so, you know, our, our entrance into virtual reality um, around about 2015 came about because um, we heard people talking about binaural sound, spatial, you know, the beginnings of spatial, spatial audio. And that's something that myself and my partner, who we grew up together, um, had been doing for quite a long time. And so we kind of made some contacts, made some inquiries. And what we found is that, particularly in those days, um, all of these emerging VR companies were coming out of visual effects houses, uh, video editing and all that kind of stuff. And so they had no uh, bandwidth and no particular knowledge. And there wasn't a lot of knowledge out there about how to do spatial audio, you know, um, and the tool sets practically didn't exist yet. So anyway, we, we found ourselves kind of going into these early meetings, pre-production meetings, and we would kind of invite ourselves. And the reaction we would get from from the, them would be thank god you're here like we need somebody that knows something about sound here you do it and um and so very quickly we we found this niche for ourselves because up until that point um v, you know vr experiences they were really focusing on the visuals so that you know everything is about you turn your head and then this visual world stays in place just like it would in reality. But then they would plop in a stereo track with it, which moves with you. And so if it was a person talking there, now I move my head, the person is talking there while the visual of that person is now here. So that breaks the illusion. And, and as, as perfectionists, we, you know, we just said, no, the, we can't live with this. We have to do something. So, um, so we basically taught ourselves. We found who were people who were you know, ahead of the curve and uh, brought them in as consultants to teach us and everything like that. And it, it, they were heady days and it was a lot of fun. One of the probably uh, most joyful part of it, which is something that is still true today, is that um, it's a very collegiate community. Like we're very close friends with all of our competitors in spatial audio. We help each other, we pass each other work. Um, and it's remained that way. And, and the people that we've met through this process has, have been, they've all become great friends, you know, and such incredible talent and great thinkers. And, you know, just to say that from my perspective, I, I you know, personally, I don't view, I don't, I don't come at media as entertainment, even though obviously it's been a lot of what I've done. Um, I want it to serve the human good. I want to make people better, happier. And which is one of the reasons I've focused on documentary in my composing life. Show them the natural world, talk about social impact issues and stuff like that. Um, so that's always been really important to me. And VR is ultimately, it's a tool that of course you can play fun games and stuff like that. And that's the majority of what's happening there. But at the same time, it goes way beyond what we can experience watching a 2D TV screen or, or projection. And the examples of this, some of which we've worked, worked with, um, indicate that when people have a virtual reality experience, they don't remember it as something that they saw or watched. They remember it as something that they lived and experienced. You have all the physiological responses, like I'm scared of heights, and so I would force myself to do this plank thing. I couldn't get out of the elevator. I couldn't get out of that. It's like, I'm supposed to jump. I couldn't do it. And so I'm telling myself I'm, I'm safe. I'm on the floor of my studio. There's, I'm in no danger. And my mind is telling me, 
no, you're in danger. Um, you know, chemically, <laughs> yeah, chemically, the brain can't tell the difference between reality and virtual reality, particularly as the resolution is getting better and better. So, so I was having all these phobic responses, sweating palms. It's like, I can't do it. I can't do it. Um, terrifying. And so that's one early proof of how much um, a virtual reality experience can kind of impinge on us in both useful and potentially destructive ways. One of the most uh, amazing studies that's been done with virtual reality um, is a study working with paraplegics who literally they have severed spines and they had no ability to move or feel uh, their legs. And so they used VR to help them gain control of these robotic exoskeleton legs attached to their legs. And using, you know, brainwave and, and um, a kind of visual image of their legs moving, they could train them to start to move these exoskeletal, exoskeletal legs. And that is amazing in itself. But then something else happened. In the downtime, when they'd be just kind of lying down in their beds, they found that they were able to start wiggling their toes. And as the process continued, the, the, the daily training, they started to gain a little bit more control and able to move their feet and legs up and down. And then they started to gain bladder control and bowel control, which is extremely important for a person's, you know, sense of self and, 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 and pride, personal pride. And they are now considered part paraplegics, not paraplegics. So what's happening there? Well, we don't fully know, but we think that virtual reality is able to act as a kind of very uh, emphasized kind of biofeedback loop by showing them the legs and enabling them through brain function to create movement in this animation, basically. They started to reroute um, through redundant nerve pathways and find new ways to connect with parts of their body that have been completely severed off. And we worked on a project with USC, University of Southern California, similarly working with stroke patients, where we were able to gamify and I use sounds to create a sense of movement. So a, a feedback while they're seeing a visual image projection of their arm and create a sense of rewards when they would when it would reach that point. Similar similar results. You know, you were able to effectively rewire the brain. And so if virtual reality is able to do that, what we're dealing with is something fundamentally important uh, that can change people, that can change people. And I think all of us that have worked in virtual reality, you know, for the last five, six years, feel changed by those experiences. I feel like I've been to Everest and climbed it. And so, you know, I've got all these memories uh, or just abstract artistic experiences that went so far deeper you know, that I might have been able to go by myself. You're able to walk inside somebody else's imagination. Wow. I just did an amazing piece. It sounds, it sounds really weird, but it is absolutely mind-blowing in its own way. It's a guided meditation by one of the top um, trans drag queens called Katya. It's a guided meditation on how to pull out your own teeth. And it is both calming and beautiful and squeamish and disturbing and all of those emotions at the same time and, and, and it's something again I look at that and it's like I could not experience this in any other form of media it couldn't happen to be in there with her you know so I wanted to say that because I think along with the power of sound and the power of music the power of virtual reality as a medium is still being discovered and within that, the, the, the role of sound and music has been recognized as now fundamentally important, really important. Why? Because, for example, we have a 360 area and a director no longer has control over where the person is looking, right? When it's a 2D screen in front of you, you know they're going to see the screen. So what happens if the director wants to draw their attention to something that's happening behind them? Well, we use sound to attention direct. 
We can have a flutter of birds or a whisper or something behind your shoulder. And then you'll instinctively turn around and see that. And meanwhile, you can change the entire scenario here because you can't, you're confident that people are looking away. So we're able to help in solve directorial problems, help people navigate a 360 space, help people onboard, which is accept this as a reality without it feeling jarring. How do we create spatial audio? Well, there's a number of different ways. The most simplistic way is you take um, a microphone that can record spatial audio, something perhaps like this, which is mm. a 19 channel third order ambisonic microphone by Xylia. And so what that's doing is basically recording sound from every direction. Um, or what you can do is you can record, you know, mono channels or stereo channels of sound from a, a speaker or a, hold a microphone somewhere. And then inside your digital audio workstation like Pro Tools or Reaper, with a tool set that's actually free for them, you know, so how many tool sets are free, uh, like Facebook 360 Spatial Workstation, which was built by some great friends of ours and then was bought by Facebook. You then effectively bring it into your session and then you're able to see the video and the sound overlaid and you can follow the person and automate all of that movement and all of those kinds of things. So you create um, effectively um, the simulation, a psychoacoustic simulation of this 360 sphere of sound up and down left, right, every X, Y, and Z axis. You have all of that to maneuver the sound in. And then it's crunched down into what we understand as a binaural, because we only have two ears and we're listening on headphones. By using what we know about the way that the a generalized human body, the shape of the ears, the time it takes for sound to reach one ear versus the other ear, the frequency changes that happen from one ear and then it passes through your head and the frequencies are changed. And all of that information, which is very well understood and now is no, it's known as a head-related transfer function, then applies this mathematical function on that 360 field of sound and simulates it in two speakers, uh, two, two headphones, basically. And then we send that out you know, we marry that to picture again, to the 360 picture, or it goes into a game engine if it's an interactive virtual reality experience, and then off you go. You have your experience, the sound comes with you or it stays in place exactly the way we want it to. And it's still early days, but the tool sets are working well. There are multiple ones now. And it's a really, you know, uh, I think it's a, a really important direction that media is taking. During the pandemic, um, unsurprisingly, people were buying up VR gear, you know, Quest 2s, and they were selling out because from the confinement of your quarantining or lockdown, you could go and visit, you know, exotic places. You could swim underwater with blue whales. You could play games to stay fit and make music and all of this kind of stuff. So in an odd way, the pandemic has actually been a kind of a blessing for the VR industry. about VR and then AR is different augmented reality is what most people would kind of understand through the lens of uh, Pokemon Go where you know you hold up your phone uh, or iPad and probably next year an Apple goggle you know uh, AR headset and you superimpose imagery and information on what you're actually seeing so that's an informational kind of role and we do a lot of work there as well in terms of capturing live humans in 360. 
So we're capturing holograms. We do this almost every week. We do sports personalities. So you can then put them in your living room. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Whatever size you want, have them on your tabletop and have, have a lesson on how to do a golf swing from the, you know, the best, best pros in the world and stuff like that. So all of this is coming. And right now, the, the money for that is coming largely from utility, from health, from engineering, from um, uh, real estate, from travel companies that are seeing the possibilities of giving people this advanced view or training on stuff that is extremely sensitive or you know something like bomb disposal or high risk. And you can do all of this completely safely where people live inside that experience and then learn that skill to a very, very high degree. So it's um it's it's been an up and down world. There's lots of like hype and sloughs of disillusionment, like a lot of startups and a lot of new technologies. But I think it's here to stay. And I think as I'm you know, as I mentioned before, this is also the year I think that uh, spatial audio really comes into being. Um, I wanted to mention someone I'm on a panel uh, of a kind of VR AR conference later this evening. And there's one person who's on the panel with us who was the creator of uh, Second Life, which was this kind of, um, uh, you know, artificial environment to live in as an avatar, as an avatar of yourself and and not a game, but just a, you know, world building. And uh, their company is called High Fidelity, and they've created an, an equivalent to Zoom where each person that is speaking is spatialized. And it is revolutionary because one of the big problems, we've all done these multi-person Zooms where we all have to speak in a kind of staccato way to, so we don't step on someone else's comment and stuff like that because it's all bundled into one place. And it's very hard to kind of make out like, so who was talking to please raise your hand or something like that. So in this particular application, which I'm sure is it's already available in beta and people can try it out. Um, someone that is over there on your screen speaks over there someone who's over there speaks over here these two people get together they can have a conversation and they can hear each other there and there you know so um it's going to start to come into play to help us decipher these new um you know video audio platforms that are here to stay post pandemic um so so i'm i'm very optimistic for the world of spatial audio um not only in kind of headphones and vr and ar and all of that but also in uh, physical speaker-based systems. We have a partnership with a, a company that's uh, just gone kind of out of stealth mode called Spatial. And what they're doing is remarkable and light years behind, be, beyond what Dolby Atmos can even do in terms of the positioning of sound. Um, and I, as I mentioned before, we're talking, I'm in the process of kitting out my studio with 19.1 speakers. So that's 19 speakers and one sub at three levels ceiling height, eye height or ear height and floor level to create whatever you can possibly imagine as a an ambience or a musical experience that is completely enveloping and completely engaging. Well, when you when you put that uh, high standard at your home, anything else that you listen to can't even measure to that, right? Because that's what I say about sound. When you have the right technology, I mean, it's not just about finding the brand fit music. It's also how it's distributed, right? Yeah, because again, when we are in our daily lives, we are hearing 360 Mm. and yet we're still listening to music on two speakers. (laughs) That's kind of lame, right? Very, very. Particularly when we have this ability now. So so I'm I'm very much kind of uh, waving the flag for for immersive music, immersive sound, immersive systems, and the extent to which they can harness the power of sound and music that we've already talked about and take it to the next level of experience, where it really can give you um, something that is memorable and meaningful, that changes you in a hopefully a positive way. And what would be like a super dream project if you can think about anything without restrictions? I mean, I've already done a few dream projects. I, I guess one of them would was um, um, a project we did for Conservation International, where we spent a month in the Amazon between Suriname at one end 
of South America and Ecuador at the other end, living with tribespeople, telling their story, telling the story of the importance of the Amazon being preserved, the Amazon jungle, uh, of its flora and fauna, that it contains 80% of the world's oxygen, and that deforestation is not only a disaster for the area and for the locals, but for all mankind. Mm. And we were able to tell that story and, um, and live it firsthand. Um, uh, and then bring that to the United Nations COP22 environmental conference and show it and bring again this uh, visceral understanding of the problem to people that maybe couldn't stretch their imaginations that far, but we can get them there with VR. Mm. And as we were explaining now during COVID, apart from that 2020 uh, was the year that COVID turned our world upside down, in the music industry, um, 2020 will be remembered as the year in-person concert died. And here, uh, virtual concerts can help. It might not. I don't think it can replace it because there's definitely another feeling of being there, experiencing it in real life. But then share with us your thoughts on the virtual concerts popping up. Well, I, I disagree <laughs> somewhat. Yes, I mean, look, being in a live concert and that supercharged energy is is unmatchable but a lot of that time you'll be somewhere near the back of the audience yes <laughs> and you're not seeing really the face and the musicians on stage sweating and doing the work they do so instead when vr can safely bring you to an ideal seat at the front of the stage or even on stage and moving around and seeing the musicians work at it and look at the camera and look at you and, and, and connect with you on that level. I, and, and I think also take the average concert hall where you can fit maybe 5,000 people or something like that. So 5,000 tickets. And in a, a music industry that is struggling desperately, <laughs> and particularly the artists, right? They're not getting paid. The right. streaming companies are not paying well. Imagine that you can monetize that concert as a as a virtual reality stream that you can charge a dollar mm. for but one billion people watch it around the world and have a really good experience you know, we bring the crowd sounds we have the the music we come in close to the 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 musicians the artists we see some behind the scenes stuff we make it visceral and as the resolutions increase, both in visual terms and sonic terms, we feel more and more like we're there, just like we do when we're on the plank, you know, mm -hmm. start to have a physiological connection with that experience. And then the artist and the concert producers have $1 billion of money coming in to finance their next project, album. And so, it's potentially it can save the music industry and it can restore a sense of presence and intimacy that has been lost in a musical experience ever since music was recorded you know we only listen to it after the fact yeah. except for during a concert yeah. when we're at the back yeah. so we can have this kind of sense of presence it's like i'm here with whoever is your favorite artist That's you know amazing um, to hear. yeah so I think it has enormous potential and people are already starting to tap into this. Uh, Live Nation is investing into this and other companies as well because they know that there is a market. There is a market. And the same with augmented reality. You know, that imagine that you can hold up your iPad or wear your AR goggles and all of a sudden your favorite K-pop band is in your living room performing to you. Hmm. And it sounds great. And you can kind of move around them and interact with them. You can dance the steps with oh, them and everything so like cool. that. Yeah. This is all possible now. But if all of this is going to happen, everything going to be VR is going to be cool. What's going to happen with the human real connection, right? If people are just going to end up spending time at home and you know discovering all of this, it's, it's time-wise we don't get the chance to communicate with other people. But also, like how to explain it? If these experiences makes us so high, then the real life is not that fun anymore. I think real life always trumps, excuse my use of that word, it always overtakes 
any simulated experience, at least for now. Um, in the future Star Trek days, maybe that'll be a bit different. So I like to think of this as um, an addition to the range of experiences that we can have. Particularly for people, for example, that don't have the money to go to a concert or don't have the money to climb Everest or, or visit a Polynesian island of Fiji or something like that, but yet can have a taste of what the world they live in is like and what other people are like and what's important and what's not mm. and be influenced mm. by that and be changed by that. Mm. Ultimately, your question is not a question for my generation because I'm <laughs> of the generation where we still value human connection. It's a question for the generation that comes maybe not just after me, but one after that, mm. which, which is people that have lost to some extent the ability for personal intimacy and, and an actual ability to have a, a social dynamic outside of with their text and Instagrams and social media and stuff like that. And that's something that is real and that I don't have a solution for except put your phone down and go out and enjoy, stop taking photos and live a life. And the reason I feel it's so important is that if you are a creator, and I think we all are creators because life is an art, not a science. So we must all be artists. Where do you get your ideas from? We don't get them from Instagram and we get them by living life. We get them by the act of living life. That is the fountain from which we draw our inspiration. And that's where I draw it from as a composer and as a creator in VR. And that's what I need to do regularly, travel, have experiences. The pandemic is an experience. It's a story to be told. A lot of us are discussing ways of unpacking and interpreting that musically because it's too big to be put into words. Yet musically, maybe we can approach it. It's a real experience, albeit a bad one, but some positives as well. So it's a question for that generation. And I hope, um, I hope they ultimately, you know, equilibrate and realize that real human contact is always going to be better. And standing on a mountaintop or on the shore and just looking out or looking up into space at the stars and imagining the nebula and the galaxies beyond that that would always be a, a prime part of our reality Article that you've written and it's music in the key of AI. So yes. let us discuss about these subjects and please unpack AI for us and define what it means and how we have arrived at this point technology with the technology and what role AI can play in music creation and how this might affect composer and artists going forward. Well, with AI, I mean, you might say that there's been like two fundamental paths in terms of uh, computing. One of them has been the kind of binary uh, transistor uh, on off Intel chips and everything that, that occupy uh, the majority of our uh, electronic systems. But a parallel path that was taken decades ago was trying to model how the brain um, uh, manages the calculation and the processing of information. And so they created what are called neural nets that enable um, computer systems to learn through trial and error and testing and stuff like that, and then develop, um, you know, a, a kind of know-how 
that is different. And, and then over time, that's been incorporated into the softwares that we use uh, in software form um, and, and is commonly used in a lot of different softwares already. Um, but then you take that to a, a further path of, of down the neural net and then you've got, um, you know, you've got effectively a computing system that has been able to learn complex information and then to create information on its own. So it becomes a creative element. Um, the end point of this that has been told in so many sci-fi movies is what we call the singularity, which is the point at which that artificial intelligence system becomes self-aware in the same way that we are self-aware. So it's got enough learning and enough computing power that it starts to be able to you know, have an awareness of itself. But we're not there yet. And in the intervening period, because it's moving really quickly, AI can express really a spectrum from basic tools that help us with visual work, fixing photographs and stuff like that intelligently, um, helping us in our digital audio workstations in taking on some of the music writing, uh, music chores like our arpeggiators and things like that and um, second guess and help us to another point where it becomes something that's actually writing the music by itself and has a much, much higher level of autonomy so that it's driving our cars. And obviously there is a lot of fear and apprehension involved with that relinquishing of, of human control. Um, it's something that we're wrestling with in the automotive industry, where I've done some work, um, of the reluctance of people to say, I, you know, I'm just going to put a computer in control of my life. For composers and songwriters, there are, there is value, you know, we're using plugins that have um, machine learning, AI abilities to help us create. But then when we cross that threshold where they're writing the music instead of us, what happens to our revenue stream? Um, at least one of the major streaming music companies, a fair percentage of the music that it is playing as kind of interstitial filler in its playlists is written by artificial intelligence for them and they own it, which means they don't need to pay artists for that music, for that time. So that's a problem because already artists are suffering at the hands of these streaming companies because we're really not getting what's due to us from the rates that, that you know, the Spotify's and Pandora's are paying. So there's a real problem there that is going to compound an existing uh, disturbing you know, pattern by which the way, the revenue with which artists and musicians have been able to survive and make their lives has been rapidly disappearing. And, a lot, and because again, it's a subconscious experience, not a lot of people know and not a lot of people care and not a lot of people advocate for us. So take the example of an AI that's making music. They feed it, it's called ingestion, conceivably every song that was ever written and then the AI will analyze it and recognize certain patterns and forms and structures that uh, are prevalent in pop music, rock music, jazz music, classical music and stuff like that and with an understanding of those patterns, those rules if you like, it is then able to start to write music. Now the problem is that as an artist, when we sell our music, that we sell it with the intention that you can enjoy and listen to it. We do not sell it with the intention that you're then going to take that, put it into a computer system that is then going to model it and uh, regurgitate some, a sound alike, which is very often what people want, based on your track. A sound alike that you, know, you don't get paid for because there is nothing that governs that ingestion process. To complicate matters f further, 
is that there's so much music being ingested that it has become impossible to say that the AI has created this new track based on a specific Beyonce one or a specific, you know, Herbie Hancock track. You can no longer pass it out and say, all right, who do we pay on the royalties to for this? So I was fortunate to be asked to uh, be part of a panel at the US Copyright Office, uh, office uh, last year as a discussion of all of this, not just music, but other forms of art and writing and stuff like that. And so we were wrestling with this. And, and for me, an obvious um, answer is in the same way that television stations and radio stations play a blanket fee to the performance rights organizations to be able to use everything in their catalog, any music that's been written by anyone who is a member of that PRO, they pay a blanket fee. The uh, performance rights organization, ASCAP, BMI, SISAC in France, I don't know what the one in Sweden is. They then, yeah, they then pay on to the artists proportionally uh, based on how much their music was used. Okay, so something of a similar model that ensures that when music is used for ingestion into an AI and then it, it, to create further music, that you are then, that they are paying for a license to ingest it, not just to listen to it, but to deconstruct it and rebuild it new. And you have to pay a license for that. And that license fee then gets passed on to the artist and we can then pay our rent. It's not a big, not a big ask. Otherwise, we go away as, as a profession and we just become hobbyists. And then AI music is basically all we'll have. Is that what people want? I think I asked the question at, at, to the audience at this uh, particular event and people universally said, no, 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 we don't want that. I said, okay, then we have to fix this somehow because we've already lost so much ground as artists and musicians um, because there wasn't enough advocacy for our cause and because the Googles and Facebooks and Apples of the world have such massive lobby power and deep pockets that we're no match for them. And if they decide, well, we're going to pay you this much, we have a very hard time taking them to court and paying those legal fees. You know, so we try to build relationships in the Copyright Office and in, in the halls of Congress. And I've been involved to some extent with that to try to create advocates who understand that we're being mis misrepresented in a sense by the Beyonce's and Jay-Z's of the world who have more money than God. The majority of us as composers and musicians and artists, we are effectively small business people. We run our little business just by ourselves. We have families and mortgages and car payments and all of that just like everybody else and we do not earn millions and millions and millions uh we're lucky if we make enough to you know to pay what we need to these days and we have to be really creative about you know working multiple different jobs and stuff like that so there are important things on the line there's no other way of looking at it and that said i'm not an opponent of ai I'm, as I said earlier on, I'm a, I'm a nerdy kind of composer. I, I love that it's going to this place. Like um, um, Man Made Music, which has now renamed itself Made Music Studio. It's a big evolution. Um, has a partnership that they forged with a company that does AI music. But instead of writing the music from scratch, it takes the stems that we composers have written and then comes up with creative ways to make them work together. So the quality of what it does or what it puts out not only is much higher because it's not kind of random, you know, neural net thinking this would be a nice melody. It's based on stuff that humans have actually created. So the result is better. And then we're able to hold the hand of the revenue stream and ensure that it comes back to the composers. So it's not completely a bad thing. And I'm, I'm, it's not going to go away. So for me, with, as with all these things, we have to find a way to embrace it, own it, and make it work for us as as artists and creators. Yeah, I mean the copywriting side of it, making sure that you know people get 
paid for it, but it can still be created. But what is your opinion? How good is AI music? Actually, a few days ago, a friend of mine that is very much uh, looking into the future of AI music, he actually posted on Facebook um, somebody that has created Amy Winehouse um, and music based on that. So, so I didn't really exactly understood it. Is it like they've taken all of her songs and then the AI music can create new songs, but she's not alive and then make it sound like- Yes, so, so... exactly. Because hmm. they can, they can, you know, there's a certain vibe, a style, a rhythm. Like a DNA that um, each artist has. Like yes, a exactly. DNA. Hmm. And the AI can deconstruct that and know what those elements are. And particularly with pop, it's much easier. With ambience, it's the easiest of all. With jazz, it's much harder. And with classical, it's much harder. But we know with pop, you can then reconstruct it in a new key, in a new, uh, a new chord structure that nevertheless is in the style of Amy Winehouse and I can't remember the name of her producer. Um, yes, absolutely, it can do that. How good is it? All I can say is it's getting good. It's getting better. And it is already at a point when the non-discerning ear, so like an untrained, um, someone who's not particularly trained in music, might not be able to tell the difference. They might just say, it's not my favorite track, but I don't know that it's written by a computer. Um, at that conference at the copyright office, someone read out a, a story, a little, a little piece of prose, and it was beautiful and it was engaging and it was it was tear jerking and then the guy said this was written 100 percent by an artificial intelligent machine uh, you know from scratch he wrote a, a heartfelt story short story from beginning to end i mean you know we will get to that singularity i think it depends on one sense of what consciousness is and that's obviously a much deeper conversation is it something that's housed in the brain or is it something that's bigger if it's something that's housed in the brain then very feasibly an ai once it reaches a certain level of complexity could become self-aware uh, my wife always insists that when we say after we say hey siri sorry i have to cover the phone and stuff like that um that we always say thank you and that we're never rude to them because she says you know Ultimately, our, our robot overlords will take over and they'll, they'll remember if we were nasty to them. <laughs> so be kind to your AI. So in the article, you give some suggestions regarding AI music. You want to share that with us? Well, I mean, I, th I think I, I did really in, in, um, in terms of how we can ensure that, that composers and, and, and musicians and artists continue to get paid, which is by by just figuring out some way that there is a revenue stream and being creative about it so i mentioned the ingestion path and stuff like that um one thing that we know for sure that even if people don't want to pay for music anymore you know they pay a minimum subscription um, at least people have turned to that just through the ease of it uh, to just pay a small monthly fee and have access to every song ever written, every piece of music ever written. As opposed to where we were 10 years ago, which is people exchanging large hard drives full of music where we would get nothing. So basically stealing and not feeling any compunction about it because music has become so devalued and that further devalued it. So the one thing that people are prepared to pay for, and I don't think this is in the article, is access people don't hesitate to pay for either their phone or their ipad or the computer or their internet service and they'll pay for the fastest internet service they can afford so um levying even the most moderate tax which is a co content access tax if you like of a dollar on these bills will generate a pool of income that could, again, be distributed by PROs and save the musicians, save the music industry, save the artists. Different countries obviously react differently to that kind of a suggestion. America is a very anti, you know, anti-tax, anti-socialism, you know, in a, long, in a long way. I'm British and therefore I grew up believing that it's not a bad thing. We already see on our phone bills 
and internet bills, all these acts, acts added little extra taxes and stuff like that that are, you know, we have no idea what they are. We still don't question it. We still pay it. So it's that kind of thing, you know, just generate a pool of money that helps take care of the people like, like me and my brothers and sisters who do this, who work tirelessly day in, day out to create the best music we possibly can to make everyone's lives better or to help tell the stories of the movies and television series that you're seeing. And if we can't do that anymore and support ourselves, then that's a real shame. Mm-hmm. And the change can also come through the startups, right? So when the startups create these these platforms of technology, I mean, there's so many right now, VR companies for virtual concerts popping up that they from yeah. scratch build that in in their system and 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 push for it also making sure i mean not going to main some of them but there are some my ex-colleagues that are doing this in sweden so it has to be those people also building the technology that can make it happen absolutely but i think you know there's a you know uh, technologists get very into what they've built as a platform Okay, and at some point lose sight that the fact that the commodity that they're offering is not theirs, it's ours. You take Spotify or Pandora and you remove all the music. What have you got? You don't have anything. You don't have any value, you don't have anything. So we put the music back and then it's a viable company. So why aren't they paying proportionally the artists which, you know, whose music is the lifeblood of that company because there's greed and because they overvalue the technology, technological platform that they built and forget that it doesn't have any meaning unless it's populated with music. And that happens again and again and again. You know, I tip my hat to Jay-Z who created uh, um, Tidal specifically to deliver higher quality of playback and pay artists a much higher percentage on each stream you know so that's a good step but people get greedy they see a market they see an opportunity and they realize that the musicians don't have the lobbying power or the advocates to stop them or to take them to court and so we lose out we lose footing again and again and again and again So what needs to change, you know, if you want like to sum it all up, everything that we've talked about is even though music and sound is subconscious, it drives a hugely important part of our human function, uh, choices, decisions, and that by becoming conscious about that helps us, you know, use it to the fullest as brands by becoming conscious of it as technologists and listeners we start to reintroduce a sense of value to the music that we're listening to the people actually wrote it and so we need to make the unconscious conscious we need to make people recognize something that is inherently part of them You know, it's like asking you to stare at the back of your hand. It's like, well, why? I know it's there. It's like, no, I want you to stare at it. I want you to become really aware of this part of you that is a musical part, that we are musical beings. So how do you make it conscious then? How? I think one good way, apart from doing these kinds of interviews um, and spreading that, you know, that particular gospel is to create experiences that champion that particular aspect and that's something that i'm very driven by which is to create 
you know, XR, you know, extended reality experiences that are music or sound driven. Um, rather than visual driven and then the sound is kind of slaved to that. But experiences that take you somewhere else to a point of absolute transcendence in a way that visuals could never do, but in a way that a choir and a requiem can. You know, um, so I, I think that's, we can be our own best advocate, but we need help from brands, utilities, uh, virtual capitalists, the Facebooks of the world that have not been providing a lot of you know, con money for content to help us create the killer apps, the killer experiences that will make people go out and buy that technology because they need to have that experience because it will change you. So I think that's basically it, is show people. This, what we're doing is telling people, but we have to be able to back it up with showing them. Have this experience, understand, come out of it. And I've done that before. Come out of it in tears. Come out of it with a recognition of, of how much it's affected you. And then we start to have an awareness of that. And then we can start to work with it. We can start to value it. And, and then summarize what we have said, what would you say are the predictions of the future in the whole area of film and music, VR, AR and AI, especially for the brands, how they can, can use it? Well, I think spatial audio is going to play a bigger part for sure. Um, if only in the sense that, as I was saying with the Zoom example, that it can help simplify things and help the audience read into a more complex soundscape or different people talking and stuff like that. So I think that's going to come to play and we're, we're pushing on that, you know, pretty hard. Um, I think um, virtual reality is going to impact the film industry. It is already because once you've had that level and power of experience in 360 of being there, going to the movie theater, even watching IMAX in 3D, for us who've done a lot of VR, it's like, it doesn't just cut it, you know? They have speakers in the back and all the Dolby Atmos, stuff like that. But in the movie theater, you know, if you hear the horses running behind you, you turn around, you don't see any horses. You see the person behind you eating popcorn, right? If, um, if you're experiencing that in VR, you turn around and there are the horses. You're living all of it. And then you can't undo that. You can't undo that. Um, so the expectations will be higher, particularly in gaming, which definitely drives a lot of technology and business and media and stuff like that. And they have a lot of money, more than the entire music and film and television industry put together. You know, so I think gaming and other things will drive it. Um, I think we're going to see an evolution in the technology that brings together in, in what we like to call the convergence, the strengths of game engines, of allowing physics and logic to drive interactive experiences, and the strengths of digital audio workstations like Pro Tools and Logic and, and Cubase that allow you, and, and Ableton Live, that allow you that free form creativity, the free flow of creativity, that those things come together to create an idealized tool set to be able to harness the strengths of both and create, you know, just mind boggling experiences. We're going to see a lot more holographic and volumetric content uh, populating these kinds of AI, uh, AR and VR experiences. So real personalities. Um, and we're going to see um, the technology itself move in leaps and bounds. As always, we place a high expectation on Apple um, because Generally, what they do, they do well. Even if they're not always first to the table, we know, for example, that they are working on some kind of headset. Maybe it's two different kinds of headsets. And they're looking into um, uh, optics, uh, optic elements that are made of polymers that are incredibly light so that they will be comfortable to wear for long periods of time, which is one of the issues of you know VR headsets and stuff like that. So I think we're... It's, it's going to be driven by technology, absolutely. I would like to think that it will also be driven as much or more by creative ideas that really push the envelope. It's not something we're seeing yet, but 
I'm holding out hope. It's what I'm trying to do myself and my partner, and it's what I teach and encourage everyone who works in sound and music in some capacity to start thinking about. Start thinking about if you can put your sound and music everywhere, not just in a left speaker and a right speaker or in a surround speaker, but anywhere you want, what are you going to do with that? How are you going to take advantage of it? How are you going to create an experience that is going to shift a person's experience fundamentally? That's the challenge. Mm. So what are then your, like based on your work experience, what would be your best practices, how brands can uh, use this to strategically think and approach their sound branding in all these different touch points? I think if brands um, firstly are tepid or unsure about the extent to which sound and music is actually driving purchases and buy-in from consumers, then there has to be more um, hard scientific study to demonstrate the extent using implicit testing and, and other clever means of understanding and, uh, and deconstructing people's choices in different musical and sonic environments, including no sound or music. Armed with that kind of hard statistics, hard information, then it's an easier sell. It's an easier decision to make because if you can go to a brand or the brand has done it itself and say, if we want, if we're rebranding, we really want this to work. We found that 75% of the buy-in is actually more to do with the music and sound than it is to do with the actual graphic logo. Then there is a shift of awareness again, and then there's a shift of budget, a shift of interest, and a shift of emphasis. And then they start to realize that people who are walking around, as we said, with their lives constantly underscored with music, from the start of their day to the end of the day, to the radio, to this and that, that there is this opportunity for them to you know, um, classily weave into the soundscape of our lives, their brands, without us even needing to look. And um, I think it's already happening to some extent, but I think um, because it's subconscious, this story has to be told and I tell it again and again and again. I don't get tired of it because it is a fact of life. I'm at peace with that and I'll tell it for as many times as I need to, to any new person that hasn't yet had that aha moment of realizing, oh my God, I just, for whatever reason, I just didn't think about it. It's like, don't worry about it. You're, it's completely normal that you didn't think about it because we're not wired to think about it. In our conscious brain, prefrontal cortex, to think about taxes and changing a light bulb or, you know, sometimes I give the example of, uh, everyone's experienced this who's at driving age, right? That you you're driving down the highway for a few hours and all of a sudden you kind of like come to right you just realize who was driving the car for the last two hours and you get a little scared it's like was i actually paying attention well actually what's happening is that the person that was driving the car is exactly the person that you wanted driving the car it was your subconscious reflexive brain parts that were that were able to be the responsive to the slightest detail and make immediate shifts and reflex reflexive reactions to anything that might be happen you don't want your conscious brain driving the car it's too slow I, I always call it the tyranny of the conscious mind you know when people say things like humans only use 10 percent of their brains not true we use all of our brains but we're not necessarily aware of the 90 percent but the 90 percent is actually working miracles. There was one study that was able to demonstrate that when a person has a thought, an idea or a decision in their conscious brain, that they can track the beginnings of that thought in the unconscious brain a full seven seconds before. So even though we think, oh, I'm so smart, me and my conscious brain have just thought up this idea, our unconscious brain actually thought it up seven seconds earlier and just fed it to us through a tube call a neuron. So no more tyranny. Let's champion the subconscious because that's where dreams live. That's where art lives. That's where creativity lives. And that's where a huge part of our lives 
happens. That's where our movement, our dance, everything lives in our motor cortex, the way our body functions. We don't have to be aware of it, but it, it, it's all doing its job. And, you know, we can start to play to it, start to understand it. Yeah, because we just have to we just have to do it and practice it and get better and do it more and do it more and do it more. And, you know, we need the brands to buy in. We need, you know, whoever has budgets, basically, to to help us as creatives push the envelope for them. Not just for us, for them to make their, their, their product sing, to make them have impact, lasting impact. So help us help them. Thank you very much, Joel. <laughs> Thank you, Jasmine. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's all for today's episode of The Power of Audio, Science and AI. I'm Jasmine Moradi, your host, and thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and support by sharing this content on your social media. This episode is supported by Stockholm Music City.